Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast. Today's Monday, July 6, 2020. I hope you had a great July 4th weekend. Today's podcast is the third in our four-part miniseries on prenatal genetics. Last week, we had an introduction to prenatal genetics, as well as a podcast on aneuploidy screening and testing. In today's podcast, we're all mutated, carrier screening. Dr. Tamar Goldwasser and I discussed the topic of carrier screening during or prior to pregnancy. We discussed the advances in carrier screening over the years and why expanded carrier screening makes more sense nowadays as compared to screening based on family history and ethnicity. On Thursday, we will have the fourth and final podcast in this miniseries. In that podcast, Invasive Testing, CVS and Amniocentesis, Dr. Andre Rebarber and I discussed the options for invasive testing, what they entail, and why someone might choose to undergo invasive testing in pregnancy. Dr. Goldwasser and I touched on this topic last week, and Thursday's podcast will be a deep dive into that specific aspect of prenatal genetics. Have a great day. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Helpful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. We're here with Dr. Tamar Goldwasser, OBGYN and medical geneticist, and we're going to talk today about carrier screening. Tamar, welcome back to Helpful Woman. Hi. Thank you. So we already spoke about genetics in general and all the advances in genetics, and then we spent a lot of time talking about aneuploidy screening. And I wanted to shift and talk a little bit about carrier screening. And so carrier screening is a little bit different, obviously, from aneuploidy screening and that the initial testing we're doing for carrier screening is we're actually checking not the fetus, but we're checking the parents to see if they have a genetic condition or carry a genetic condition that they can pass on to the fetus. So step one would be to check the parents. Step two would be to check the fetus. So when we're checking the parents, what does it mean to be a carrier of a disease? Meaning parents are like, well, I don't have this condition. What does it mean I'm carrying something? So how do, how do you explain that to people? Okay. So I'll explain to people that actually, if you look deep enough, most people are carriers for, for something. So that means that one of your two copies of a certain gene isn't functioning properly. Either it's missing a piece of the DNA sequence, but whatever it is, you inherited from one of your parents a, a gene that's, that's not going to work properly. But you're healthy and you're fine because you have a second copy of that gene that is working properly. You got it from the other parent. And so, and, and this is a quality of something called recessive conditions where if you inherit one copy of a gene that's not working, but the other copy that you have is working, you don't see disease, you're healthy, you're fine. And, and there are, when we find that people are carriers for a certain genetic condition, they'll go back and tell their parents and the parents will say, oh, it's not my family. But what I'll explain is these, these mutations or these genetic changes have been in our families for many, many generations. And it's fine because it's recessive. It's not going to cause disease. You can be a carrier for this genetic mutation and you're healthy and you're fine. It's only an issue if you're a carrier for a genetic condition and you get together with someone who's also a carrier for the same genetic condition. When that happens, 
there's a chance that the baby will actually manifest that that disease and and um then you have something to talk about. And then there's then that's what, what people are really looking for. Right. So these autosomal recessive conditions, the the concept is that, you know, since everybody has two copies of every chromosome, there's redundancy. And for many, if not most, genetic conditions, the only way someone's going to actually have the disease is if both copies are mutated, right? They're they're correct. Copy from their mother, the copy from the father. If they're both have a mutation, then that person will have the disease. But if only one copy is mutated, abnormal, and the other copy is normal, you go along fine. And so what happens is, this is where we sort of like have to go back to high school biology with patients and bring out that square, you know, with yes. the big A, little A, big A, little A. And so what happens is sort of mathematically, so if let's say I were a carrier of a genetic condition, right? So I have one copy that's normal, one copy that's abnormal of my children, Half of them, you know, on average, will get the normal copy and half will get the abnormal copy. And again, doesn't really matter, you know, if they do or they don't because they're not inheriting a disease. But if it happens to be that my wife has the same genetic mutation and she's passing on an abnormal copy to half of her kids, right? So amongst our four kids, one out of four, just by, you know, flipping a coin, one out of four would get the mutation from me and get the mutation from my wife and have a double mutation and therefore have the condition. Uh, and so what happens is when we're doing the carrier screen is we're trying to find out who carries what conditions in a couple to see if their kids are at risk for any conditions that we can test for, and if so, how many. Right. And what's nice about carrier screening is you don't have to be pregnant to do it. So you can just, it's, it's just about you. It's about you, the woman, or you, the man, and what have you inherited from your parents? And so it's a, usually done by a blood test. So you could also do it by a saliva test. And you'll find out if you're a carrier for something. Now that carrier screening has expanded and we're testing for over 100 conditions, there's a very good chance that you're going to find out that you're a carrier for not just one, but more than one or two conditions. And it's not going to affect your life. It's, it's usually just going to be you're not going to ever get that disease. You just happen to know that you've inherited this mutation and it's fine. And it just means you're human. Couples usually will do this to say, okay, well, are we at risk for something? You know, we're both healthy and our families don't seem to have these conditions, but let's find out if the two of us happen to be at risk to have a baby with a specific condition. So it's just a way to be knowledgeable and even prepared so that you can maybe do something wise or just be, you know, like explore your options. If you happen to be a couple that's called a carrier couple, like at risk. So let's say cystic fibrosis. If you're both carriers for cystic fibrosis, you're not going to have cystic fibrosis. But in theory, like you said, one out of four of your children will be predicted to have the disease cystic fibrosis. And it's just like you said, it's like flipping a coin. So each time you have a pregnancy together, there's a one in four chance that the baby will have that disease or that condition. Right. And so, I mean, a few things there are very important and sort of working backwards, like you said, each pregnancy is one in four. So it's not like if, if this couple has four children that by definition, one will have the disease and three won't. It could be that zero have the disease, one, two, three, four. It's just each pregnancy to one in four chance. Uh, so that's important. Right. It's also part of these prediction models. You can't use what happened before to see what's going to happen in the next pregnancy. But the other thing you said, which is one of the reasons it's very different from 
aneuploidy or Down syndrome screening is for aneuploidy or Down syndrome screening, again, you're, you're trying to find out if the fetus has a condition. The parents don't have Down syndrome and don't carry Down syndrome. And so you have to check each pregnancy because each fetus is different. But for carrier screening, theoretically, you really only need to be tested once in your lifetime because your DNA is not going to change. You can be tested when you're a newborn. You can be tested when you're 20. You can be tested at any point. The only reason people get tested for carrier screening more than once, it's not because something can change in them. It's because we have more conditions we can screen for, right? So meaning if you get tested for Tay-Sachs and you're not a carrier, you will always not be a carrier. But the difference is, well, now let's say they have a test that can check for Tay-Sachs and Canavan's disease. Okay, well, you'll get screened again, not for the Tay-Sachs part, for the Canavan's disease. And that has happened over the years. I know when I, you know, before my wife and I started having kids and we got our genetic screening. So at the time, there were five conditions that we could test for. That was it. And now the number is over 300 that you can test for. Now, whether you should test for all 300 is something else, but meaning that's what it's done in it. And it's skyrocketed. It went from five to 17 to 70 to 200. It's just sort of like, you know, the it's not a straight line. The, the, the science is exploding on this. But in theory, again, if someone got tested for all 280 whatever conditions and they're negative, they're going to be negative for those forever. It's just if they uh, develop tests for more conditions that you would need to get screened again. I'll tell people, you know, you are a carrier for something. Like we're yeah. all carriers for something. We're all mutated. We, exactly. <laughs> we all, we, we're, we just, you know, you don't even have to do the test. I'll just tell you, you're a carrier for something. Now, if you want to do the test, you will be tested for, you know, certain conditions that we know the genetic basis for. And, you know, it'll be... It's lucky to find out if you, you know, it, it's, you were born with what you were born with. You inherited what you inherited. Do you want to know what you've inherited or do you not want to know what you've inherited? And we can go from there. So there's, you know, we can talk about the options for couples that are both carriers for the same condition. Right. So, I mean, what happens sort of practically is one, either one of the two people will get tested first. Frequently, it ends up being the woman who's either pregnant or considering getting pregnant, but doesn't have to be, but that's just how it works out practically. And then if she, since, as you said, almost everybody tests as a carrier for something, all you have to do is make sure that whoever she's having kids with is not a carrier of the same condition, meaning he could carry a different condition, but as long as it's not the same condition, then that's fine. And if they're not carriers of the same condition, you're done. That's it. That's your screening. And that's what happens probably for 99% of couples. They they go screening and they find out that she carries something, he carries something else. It's not the same condition. You're done. There's nothing you need to do ever again unless either there is more tests that are developed or you have kids with somebody else. That'd be the only reason to to, to test anybody again. If you happen to be in that 1% where you both carry the same condition, well, then you have options with what to do. And if you're already pregnant, right, the option is either you decide to find out before birth or after birth, does a baby have this condition? And the only way to find out before birth is to do what? So you'd have to test the fetus. So you can either test the fetus by doing a CBS, or, which is a sampling of a placenta, or by amniocentesis by sampling the amniotic fluid. And then you can get the DNA from that fetus or a placenta and check for the mutations or the genetic changes that the parents are carriers for. Right. And why would parents, so let's say they find out they're a couple who carry the same uh, or mutation for the same condition. 
Why would a couple decide to test during pregnancy uh, with a CVS or amniocentesis as opposed to just waiting until after birth and testing the baby? Again, it's, it's the same odds. It's 25% no matter what. That's the, the risk. Why would they choose to do it during pregnancy versus after the baby is born? Well, usually a couple will first want to find out, well, tell us a little bit about this condition that we're, our baby is at risk for. And some conditions are pretty serious and they would even fall into the condition of lethal where it's a child born with a certain condition is predicted to to die in childhood or or have a very debilitating severe condition that would affect them at a very young age and so like for instance Tay-Sachs and so a couple might decide to test it immediately while they're still pregnant because if the baby is predicted to have that disease, they may decide not to continue the pregnancy for various reasons. And once the baby is born, and we can almost like describe to them what that child's life is going to be like and what their family life is going to be like in those first years after birth. And so couples will usually want to test when they're looking at a serious condition where they would probably consider doing a decision about not continuing or having an abortion versus continuing and having the baby and parenting that child. Are there any other situations where they might want to know before the baby's born other than if they would consider ending the pregnancy? Sure. So some conditions like cystic fibrosis, for instance, they may decide they want to know because the child will need immediate medical care or need certain treatments right away. And so they may decide to find out so that they can alert the pediatricians, alert, alert the, the uh, neonatal intensive care unit that we're expecting a baby that will need certain attention. And there are even some conditions that there's treatment available. So like SMA, spinal muscular atrophy, is a very serious condition, but there are new treatments available. And they actually take a while to get, and they're very expensive, and days count. So if you can get the treatment sooner or have it ordered on the day of birth, you can actually like seriously impact the you know the the uh, course of that disease, and so sometimes it's about being prepared, having the right resources at the time of birth, and sometimes it's about even bigger decisions like to continue or not to continue a pregnancy. Right, and some of the conditions again, you're talking about you know 300 conditions. Some of them, the quote unquote treatment is just dietary modification in the baby, what they, you know, different types of foods or sometimes just give them sort of certain enzyme replacements. And it's possible that the outcomes would be similar if you found out a couple of weeks after birth versus at birth, but it's possible that these early moments make a difference. And if you have that diagnosis early, again, even if you wouldn't end the pregnancy, but just to know right away, okay, this baby has X condition, we need to do certain things, modifications in how they're fed or, you know, therapies uh, can have a big difference. And you're not trying to sort that all out when you're also the parent of a newborn, which is a very right. stressful time. And, you know, it's, I mean, in general, just, just having a baby is very difficult, to, you know, to navigate and to have to sort of sort out genetic stuff at the same time is, is, is quite overbearing for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, it's such a good point. If you find out that you're dealing with a certain genetic condition and you're 20 weeks pregnant, you have a few months to educate yourself and be prepared and go through that emotional roller coaster of anxiety, but then gaining knowledge and feeling more comfortable about it or talking to specialists so that when the time comes, you're really 
prepared and the day of the birth is just a happy day and you're equipped with more information and you've made certain decisions already and, and it just helps. They're, you've already spoken to the, do- the child's doctor before they're even born. And so it's very powerful to have that knowledge in advance. It really is. And I think that one of the things that you know we mentioned before is that ideally this is done before people even get pregnant. And because it helps them sort of, again, sort a lot of this out before it becomes sort of time dependent, right? To, you know, when you're pregnant, sort of the, the clock is moving forward. You're always getting more pregnant at every moment. Whereas before pregnancy, you can sort of sit and figure it out and, you know, what does this condition mean and what are our chances and all that. But also if someone knows before pregnancy, particularly if it's a very serious condition, there are even options to prevent this from happening in the first place, correct? Correct. That's either someone gets tested before pregnancy or they get tested in the first pregnancy and then they have an option before their second pregnancy. Right. So our colleagues in reproductive endocrinology and infertility, they'll see carrier couples and the couple will say, look, we're both carriers for the same condition. We'd like to see if we can get pregnant and just avoid this this rush of having to do an amnio to find out if the baby is affected. So then they those couples can go through in vitro fertilization where Eggs are harvested from the woman and sperm is collected from the man and they create embryos in the lab and test as many embryos as are created, test them to see whether they've inherited both copies, you know, which would mean that that embryo is predicted to be affected with the disease. Or if the embryo only has one copy of the mutation and is predicted to just be a carrier, or if that embryo didn't inherit any. And so hopefully there'd be enough options and you just only put back embryos that are healthy. And so you avoid that scenario completely. Right. Well, at least healthy for that condition. Yeah. And it's also the interesting thing about it is it's it's very accurate, uh, meaning when, when the lab knows the specific mutation they're looking for, right? It's not just, hey, look for as much as you can and say, okay, we need to find out, does this embryo carry this mutation for Tay-Sachs? They can test the embryo, again, before it's put in the mother, with a very high degree of accuracy if that embryo does or doesn't have it. Much more accurate than screening for things like Down syndrome or that, which is a much more complex process. Uh, but for here, it's, it's pretty accurate. And so parents can, you know, they have to undergo IVF in order to do this. So if they were already undergoing IVF, okay, it's just an additional test. But if they weren't, you know, they don't need to undergo IVF. A lot of parents will choose to undergo IVF and, you know, all the complexities involved with that just so they don't have to come up to a pregnancy and say, all right, you know, one in four chance to do a CVS. Are we going to think of an abortion? I mean, all these decisions that they really don't want to have to deal with during pregnancy for, you know, it's just very hard. And they can avoid that entirely if they're just willing to undergo the IVF uh, on the front end. Right. I mean, the the hard part is that it's still very costly to right. do IVF. And so that is prohibitive for a lot of couples, but it's also just, it's hard because it changes the whole baby making process. So for the couple, so where let's say the couple didn't have infertility per se, like they weren't having trouble getting pregnant, but now they have to go through IVF. It just changes a lot. And it's very, you know, so there's couples that will, it's an amazing option and couples will go for it. And, and it's true, the lab goes through a lot to be sure that they're testing for the exact mutation. So they'll take the mother's DNA and the father's DNA, and they'll look at the DNA sequence surrounding the mutation as well, so that <clears throat> they can test to a very high degree of accuracy in the embryo to say, okay, 
here we see the presence of the mother's mutation, and here we see the presence of the father's mutation, and then they will select the embryos that are predicted not to be affected. And of course, they check the embryos for other things as well. Um, they would they can check the embryos to see if there's aneuploidy or if there's the right number or expected number of chromosomes that's available as well. Right, as you said, it it's done to avoid one problem, but it has its own set of problems. IVF, obviously, I mean, people do it, and it's fantastic. But like you said, it's it's costly, uh, which is which is a problem for a lot of people, or can be costly based on insurance coverage and everything. And it's it's invasive. It's definitely a little more complicated than procreating the old-fashioned way. It's a very technical medical process, but for some couples, it's the right answer in order that they don't have to work through what do we do if we have a pregnancy and a baby with Tay-Sachs. And so it really, and again, a lot of that, like you said, will depend on their exact situation financially, how they feel about IVF, what is the specific condition we're talking about? Is it something that is, you know, how severe is it? Is there treatment? Is there not treatment? So there's a lot of of decisions that go, or a lot of factors that go into that decision, whether it's something they want to do IVF to avoid, or whether it's just not something they want to do. Right. I mean, sometimes we'll say to a patient, what is the thing you're really trying to avoid? So if for some couples, it's like, we just cannot imagine having to go through another abortion, then for them, IVF is their, is the right mode, right? So they can go that route so that they will really reduce the chances of having to to terminate based on that condition. Some couples are like, we went through IVF and we didn't, it was, we didn't, it wasn't good for us. And so then they might opt to just get pregnant and then do early prenatal diagnosis by doing a CVS and testing the embryo. You can do a CVS as early as, you know, 10, 11 weeks and get your results within, you know, two weeks after that. So some couples will end up deciding or using the test during pregnancy method. Right. And again, three out of four times, the test will right. be normal. So it's right. not, yeah, it's not like they're doomed or anything. It's, it's, you know, okay, right. one, one in four is one in four. So it's, it's, those are the odds. And so three out of four, it'll, it'll work out okay, no matter what you do. Right. And are, are you finding that more people are open to carrier screening than were in the past? Or is this something that everyone always did? Or has there been a change over time? Nowadays, the testing has become more available. And even the the colleges of genetics and OBGYN have opened their guidelines, but it used to be very ethnic group specific. So we would recommend that African-Americans got screened to see if they were carriers for sickle cell. And, you know, Mediterranean background patients get tested for thalassemia and Ashkenazi Jews should be tested for Tay-Sachs and cystic fibrosis and Canavan disease. But so it used to be these pockets of patients that were getting tested, but but I think OBGYNs and doctors in general are finding it more accessible and offering it to their patients more often. And so I think it's it comes from the doctors. So I think more doctors are aware of carrier screening and are more comfortable talking about carrier screening. So therefore they offer it to their patients more and patients are more accepting of it. I think it it used to be just done in certain groups, but that was not because patients weren't interested. I think it wasn't offered. And now that we're able to offer it to all patients, then people are people are interested. Most patients are interested in doing the testing, even if they're not in a high risk uh, ethnic group. Right. And I think also one of the interesting things is when there was only a handful of tests available, you know, it was sort of, we were always taught, okay, you know, Tay-Sachs is more common 
in you know people who are of you know Eastern European or Ashkenazi Jewish descent. So we'll test them for Tay Sachs. And you know, like you said, thalassemias are common people. You know, Mediterranean background. So we'll test that in them. And there was this very directed testing. Say, okay, let's get a you know where are you from, where are your parents from, where are your grandparents from, and sort of figure out where they are, sort of ancestrally. And then test them based on that. But now that there's so many tests, and as you said at the very beginning, everybody carries something. And what we've also learned over time is our genetic backgrounds are all shuffled together. And so you find people who are carriers of anything. And so it's sort of nowadays, very few people would say, oh, you shouldn't be screened for Tay-Sachs because you're not Ashkenazi Jewish. Because like, well, who cares if I'm Ashkenazi Jewish? Like, I want to know if I carry Tay-Sachs. Why wouldn't I want to know that? And since the testing is so much easier from a technology standpoint to just test everyone for everything, there's really no reason not to know that information. And so it's not as, you know, we don't have to sort of ration out who gets what test. From a lab perspective, it's easier to just test everyone for everything and then sort it out based on what they carry, which I think is sort of mathematically the better way to do it because you can't really predict what someone's going to carry based on their ancestry alone two points that you brought up. So first of all, even if we take a pedigree or a family history and you think you've got it down, you don't know what's in your in your in your family history and you could have a little bit of Ashkenazi Jewish in your ancestry or you could have a little bit of African African American in your family history mix. So you never know what you're going to be a carrier for. And I think it's true that it's just nice to be able to offer all conditions to all people. The problem be- ends up is that we don't, in this country, I don't think we have enough genetic counselors or people who are ready to talk about these results with patients when the results come in. So that's where the shortage comes in. It's like, once you find these carriers, then let's say it's a carrier couple, then you just need people who can, who can help those, those couples. So that's, that's where it becomes hard, but we're lucky, let's say in New York, we're lucky that we have tons of access, genetics professionals and geneticists and genetic counselors and and IVF centers and people who can do amniocentesis and CBS. So I love that we're offering it to all patients. And I wish anyone who wants to know this information, I think, should be able to learn it about themselves and know their own risk. And then they have to be able to reach someone who can talk them through if there if there is a finding. Right. And I think what's really important for people who are listening and when we talk to patients is the only time someone's really going to need to do a deep dive into what the condition means or what to do about it is only in that circumstance when they're going to have a child with someone who carries the same thing. Meaning someone who does this test, you know, it finds out they're a carrier of three or four conditions. They don't, it doesn't matter. Like they don't need to start looking into who in my family has this and who doesn't and what does it mean and what happens to babies born with this condition, you know, and who do I speak to? It really, they don't need to do that unless it happens to be that they're in the 1% couple where they carry the same condition. And that's when, yeah, you definitely want a lot of counseling, a lot of information, figure out what that condition means. And so even though almost everyone's going to carry something, they don't need to start researching it unless it's something practical for them with having kids. And so yeah, I think that that's, that's a really important thing. So a lot of genetic counseling that happens regarding these tests isn't even needed because people are like, oh my God, I'm a carrier or something. I need genetic counseling. Well, they really don't. Like, you're fine. Like, you're healthy. You don't need to know anything. You know, most people do this when they're already about to have kids because they want to wait as long as you can before you start so that you can get all the tests that were developed. 
only if the couple tests for the same condition. And if they don't, no one needs any counseling about this. You can just sort of put in the rearview mirror, you're done. I tell people, don't start learning about these conditions because it's not you're not going to have it. You know, you're a carrier, but you don't need to become an expert on this disease. So I say, like, don't Google it if you can <laughs> avoid it. And it's, they can be pretty scary. But I do say, you know, if you're a carrier, then your siblings each have a 50% chance of being carriers. And it would be useful to share that information with them so that they could get tested so that you know and then check their partner before they have children to see if they're both carriers and that's called cascade testing where you find that you're a carrier once you find one carrier you can actually identify a whole family so that everyone in the family can be informed and you know be proactive about making good decisions about building their families one knowledgeable family member can then just share the knowledge with other people, not that they're going to be sick per se, but that they should find out if they're a carrier so that when they're planning to have children, they check their partner as well. Right. I mean, that would really only be relevant if the siblings weren't planning and doing carrier screening already. Meaning if if there's a family of five and they're all going to do carrier screening before they have kids, then it doesn't really matter, you know, about sharing between the siblings because they're all getting screened. But if, you know, someone, let's say the oldest she decides and she finds out she's a carrier for two conditions. And then her four younger siblings weren't thinking about doing it. She would say, no, you should do it. And the truth is, even if she tests negative, they should still do it because she could not have inherited something that they could have inherited. And so really shouldn't, it's a nice way to motivate family members to do the carrier screening, but I would not have a family rely on the oldest one to decide if they're going to do carrier screening and everybody else. But you'll find in families that like, one person is more interested and another person is not interested. And so that's when it would maybe be helpful. Well, Tamara, this has been great talking to you about carrier screening and again, the other talks we had about aneuploidy and genetics in general. And the amazing thing is these are, you know, we did three separate podcasts. We're talking for a couple hours total and we really just scratched the surface of genetics. It's, it's just amazing how much there is. But I think that these topics are so common and so important for, you know, women when they're pregnant, before they get pregnant, you know, considering it to think about this and to try to learn about this. And I think that the information that that you gave today was was really helpful and I appreciate it. Thank you for making this podcast. And I, I'm glad that it's giving another way to reach people and giving this information out to people. Yeah, I think it's awesome. Thank you for interviewing me and giving me a chance to share my passion for women's health and genetics. Thanks, Tamara. Have a, have a great day. Take care, you too. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman Podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.